Welcome everybody to the weekend. Before we get started, I want to tell you about Seven Corners Coffee. You know, we've had great success despite COVID and all the problems downtown. And we are going to start a second Seven Corners Coffee right here at the Eden Prairie campus. So what was known as Lydia's is now Seven Corners. The grand opening is January 23rd. I want to invite you to come. It's going to be seven day a week coffee house from 7 a.m. to 5 p.m., but still the great service on Wednesday nights and Sunday mornings. You don't want to miss it. We want this to be an outreach ministry. So please invite your friends, invite your family, invite your neighbors, put it on social media, let people check it out. We hope it'll be a kind of a community coffee house, a place where you can have events and meetings. All you have to do is just let the Seven Corners Coffee folks know, and we're going to see some great things happen. You may not know this, but a recent blogger unrelated to our church uh, mentioned the 10 top coffee houses in Minneapolis and Seven Corners was among the top 10 and was number one in friendly service. So we've got a great product. Let's use it for Jesus. All right. Now I want to start out by telling you about a man by the name of uh, Bernard Thuringen, Germany. He was a German and uh, he was a theologian and he became convinced that uh, Jesus was uh, going to come back, the world was going to end, and uh, it was going to happen in about ni- uh, 692 uh, AD. And so word went out, he made this prophecy around 660 or 662 AD, and finally when you know they approached the year of 692, everybody freaked out and thought, oh my goodness, this is the end, we're, we're done for. And of course, you know, the end did not come. Christ did not return. And so there's been a lot of that throughout history. Uh, Take, for instance, uh, another German who happened to be an astrologer. All right, his name uh, was Joseph Stouffer. And he said that uh, there was going to be a great flood that would come over the earth around 1524. And so that sent uh, his believers into kind of a craze to build boats that would be able to withstand this great flood. And as the day came when that flood was supposed to begin, uh, one poor guy who built his boat was trampled over and dead by a mob that wanted to get on that boat before the floods came. And of course, there was no unnatural rain. There was no flood that day. Fast forward to 1874, and you've got a guy by the name of Charles Tace Russell, founder of the Jehovah Witnesses. He concludes after studying the Bible and the great mysteries of the pyramids that uh, we missed out on the second coming of Christ and that there was 40 years for us to get our act together before judgment and peril would come on the earth. And so he gained a lot of followers through that. 1914 was the date that he set for that judgment to come. It didn't come. He postponed the date. It didn't come and it still hasn't come. And then you've got Nostradamus, the seer, who said Martians would be on the earth by 1999. You've got the French prophetess, uh, Jean Le Roger, who said it would be 2000. And I haven't seen any Martians around. How about you? Then there's Harold Camping more recently. Uh, Harold Camping uh, owned a, a Christian radio station in the Bay Area. I knew him. And um, he wrote a book and, and said that Jesus was coming back in 1994. Then he realized he got his calculations wrong because Jesus didn't come back and he updated to 2011 and he got those calculations wrong as well. Meantime, he had millions of dollars donated to him. He had millions of followers worldwide. Everybody was kind of, you know, not everybody, but a lot of people were really into his 
his numerology and how he was kind of figuring everything out. And just before 2013, before he passed away, he repented of trying to predict when Christ was coming. Now, why did I tell you all that? Because there's just been so much effort throughout time in history by some good people and by some not so good people to try to convince us when Jesus is going to come back. And the Bible makes it clear. Nobody knows the day or the hour. Of course, that raises a question. Well, if we can't know the day or the hour, can we have kind of an idea, proximity, timing, what it might be? Well, that's what brings us to this series that we are in. What in the world is going on? Jesus' words on the future. We've got a lot to cover this weekend, so I'm going to just jump right in, all right? Last time we were at Jesus and the disciples, they were on the Mount of Olives. Jesus was sitting there, and the disciples were stunned by something Jesus said. He had informed them that the temple was going to be destroyed. Jerusalem was going to be ransacked. And they could hardly believe their ears. I mean, this is a building and a complex of buildings that took over 42 years to build on 35 acres. One of the ancient wonders of the world. And it's going to be destroyed Well, they had questions for Jesus. They wanted to know when it was going to be fulfilled, when the temple was going to be destroyed, when Jerusalem was going to be ransacked, and what would be the sign of our Lord's return and the end of the world. Because in their minds, this idea that the temple's going to be destroyed, Jerusalem's going to be ransacked, and the coming of Christ are simultaneous. They don't imagine that there's a gap between that. Now, we know there is a gap, right? Because we know in 70 AD, the temple was destroyed, Jerusalem was ransacked, and Jesus did not come back. So the question we have is then Jesus responding to their questions, what does he say that applies to the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem 40 years later after his prophecy in 70 AD? And what does he say that is yet in our future? And that's what we want to explore this weekend. Now, just to remind you, the words of Jesus about the end are recorded in three different places in the Gospels. So, for instance, you can find it in Matthew chapter 24. We'll be looking at some verses there today. Mark chapter 13 and, excuse me, Luke chapter 21 as well. So you can kind of read those or get a Bible that has the parallel passages where you can follow them all together. What I want to do, though, is start out with some of Jesus' words found in Matthew chapter 24. Here we go. Jesus replied to their question, when's this going to happen? What's the sign the temple will be destroyed that you're coming back? Jesus replied, don't let anyone mislead you. For many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah. They will deceive many. You'll hear of wars and threats of wars. But don't panic. Yes, these things must take place, but the end won't follow immediately. Nation will go to war against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There'll be earthquakes in many parts of the world as well as famines. But this is only the first, he says, of birth pains with more that are to come. Now, when you look at what Jesus has said in this passage of scriptures to his disciples and to us as well, what he's saying is this. There are events that are going to take place. Events in nature, crises that are going to take place. Don't be fooled by that into thinking that that's the sign that the temple's going to be destroyed, that Jerusalem is going to be ransacked, or that the second coming is happening. That's been going on throughout all of history. A convulsion of events like birth pains. They come and they go. So what Jesus is saying is that the 
the false teachers, messiahs, the wars and rumors of wars. What he's saying is that the uh, earthquakes and the famines, he's saying those are non-signs, not nonsense, but non-signs. So why does he bother to say that then if they're not signs of what is about to take place? Well, let's look at them uh, a little closer and we'll find out. Let's talk just real briefly about false messiahs. Now, there have been false messiahs throughout all of history. There are those who are, who are false teachers who claim messianic powers. And then there are those who come right out and say, I am the Messiah. So, for instance, not uh, too long after Jesus resurrected and went home to be with the Father, uh, there was a person by the name of Thutis who declared to people in Jerusalem that he had the power to divide the Jordan River. And so a whole group of people went with him and he was going to command the Jordan River to separate like Moses did uh, when he spoke to the Red Sea. And so when authorities in Rome heard about that, uh, they went after Thutis and the crowd. And when they caught up, they killed many and uh, they beheaded Thutis and nothing took place. Then came a guy known as the Egyptian. He came up from Egypt and he said that he had the power and he was going to stand on the Mount of Olives and he was going to speak to the walls of Jerusalem and they would come crumbling down. So a whole mob of people went with him up the Mount of Olives. The authorities found out about it. They chased after them, killed 400 of the people, arrested 200, and somehow the Egyptian disappeared, never to be heard from again. And that's just a few of the crazies that have been around for a long time, either claiming to have great power or have insight that others don't. Jesus also talks about wars and rumors of wars. There've always been wars and rumors of wars on earth. And sometimes more so than others, like the birth pain. Sometimes, you know, the convulsion is greater, the contraction is greater, and then it'll let up. Right now in the world, there are 38 wars and 17 skirmishes that are taking place. Or how about earthquakes? Did you know that on average, there are 55 earthquakes every day around the world? And of course, if you live on the West Coast like we did for a while, everybody's always waiting for the big one, right? Well, there are 55 every day, so there's always been earthquakes. And then famines, sadly enough, right now, there are about 30 million people who are in danger of going without food. Famine is a very real problem even in our day. So what is Jesus trying to say by bringing up stuff that's going to happen and has been happening? Well, his point is this, and it's really important we hear this. His point is when somebody says that they have a vision or a dream or an insight about the timing of the coming or what something means that's outside of the scriptures. Don't be duped. Don't be fooled by it. When somebody says, ooh, this is happening and, and so this is a sign that, that this is going to happen and Christ is going to return, he says, don't be fooled by it. Don't, don't get into a personality cult. Don't go after someone's teachings because they claim to be a follower of Christ or claim to have certain powers. Now, we've seen a rash of this just, just recently. And I've been just amazed at how easily we can get engaged with the kinds of things that people will write or say. People who've had visions and dreams, for instance, that Mr. Trump was going to have a second term. And now there's kind of this tear in the charismatic movement among those who are self-proclaimed prophets who have made these kind of prophecies and, 
and obviously their prophecies have been wrong. And so it causes people to, to laugh at Christianity, it causes them to laugh at us when we do say serious and important things. There's been other stuff that's been written and put on the internet and on YouTube and put in books that sells books and gets everybody hyped up and excited. Like I just, I just recently heard someone say, someone write that uh, the coronavirus that we're experiencing, this pandemic is the uh, rider on the pale horse in the book of Revelation. Well, is this the first pandemic we've ever had? Of course not. Uh, I've had people, you know, wondering is the vaccine the mark of the beast and and on the list goes of what people think it might be. And, you know, what happens is we get more fascinated and interested by that than we do the scriptures themselves. And while I think we have to be aware of what's going around us and try to understand it, we've got to make sure that we're following Jesus and no other personality, including a pastor, a preacher, a president, a politician, whoever it might be. When people say they have visions and dreams and etc., we've got to ask ourselves, what does the word of God say? Because I want to follow the personality of Jesus. And I want to stick to what the word of God says. And the word, where the word's not really clear, I've got to make sure I don't come to a conclusion. So be very careful in these days. You know, that's one of the tricks of Antichrist. He will seem very theologically correct. He'll be very appealing. And as you'll see at the end of the message, it just takes a few twists, a few turns, and it sucks people in. All right, let's move on and see what else Jesus has to say. He says, then you will be arrested, persecuted, and he says, killed. You will be hated all over the world because you are my followers. And many will turn away from me and betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and will deceive many and people will and and people sin will be rampant everywhere and the love of many will grow cold now i just underlined a few descriptors here but this is really what we ought to be paying attention to because these words jesus is not speaking generally to believers and unbelievers to jews and to gentiles but he's actually speaking this to his followers then and now he goes on, he says, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And the good news about the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world so that all nations will hear it. And then he says, the end will come. Now, I underline that because I'm going to come back to it in just a moment. But I, I just want to say a few words about the verses before this that we read that talked about persecution. We're going to be talking about that in a couple of weeks. I'm going to do a whole message and I'm going to talk about why here in our country we are probably going to face uh, persecution like we've never faced before. And I want to talk about how we've gotten to the place that we are in in our nation right now. Morally, politically, philosophically, etc. And I think it's going to be very helpful and insightful for all of us. So I'll come back to what Jesus said about persecution, but that's what we should be paying attention to these days. Right now, though, I want to talk about those, those uh, uh, last verses that I underlined. What does Jesus mean when he says that the good news is going to be preached everywhere and then the end will come? Remember, we have to interpret Scripture 
within its context. Remember, the disciples have asked the question, when's the temple going to be destroyed? When's Jerusalem going to be ransacked? And Jesus is answering that question. And he's also going to answer when he's going to return. But if we keep in the context of answering when the temple's going to be destroyed and, and um, Jerusalem is going to be ransacked, we get a better feel for what that means. So, for instance, when Jesus says, then the end will come, does it mean the end of a life? Does it mean the end in terms of the second coming? Or does it mean the end of the temple and then the destruction of Jerusalem, the end of the temple? I think, as I look at the passage in this context and see Jesus answering the question, the end has to do with the end of the temple. Now, what does it mean the gospel preached to the whole world? Well, the gospel was preached to the whole world of that known time. I mean, God did some awesome things with the early church. The known world at that time heard the gospel preached. Paul even testifies to this. For instance, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 6, he says, the same good news that came to you is going out all over the world. It is, be it is bearing fruit everywhere by changing lives. And then he says it again in Romans chapter 16, now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ has been made known to all nations. So I think what Jesus is saying is before the, before the, the temple is destroyed, all right, and Jerusalem's ransacked, know this, that the gospel is going to go out to all the nations. It will be made available to all nations. It will travel out to all the nations, the known nations of that time. Now, is it possible that those words also refer to the end of time as we know it? When Jesus will return, is it saying, is it a double prophecy saying that before Christ will return, that in the time that he does return, all nations will hear the gospel and that'll be the end? Yes, that is possible. It could be a double prophecy. And we're very close to getting the gospel exported out to all the nations. We're just a few years away from that, is what I read recently uh, in an article and heard at a conference. But particularly, I think Jesus is speaking to his disciples who want to know when the end is going to come. And he's telling them what's going to take place before the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., now, let's look at some fascinating words by Jesus. He says, the day is coming when you will see what Daniel the prophet spoke about. And Daniel lived hundreds of years before Jesus came to earth. God gave him a unique prophecy. Daniel the prophet spoke about the sacrilegious object that causes desecration. Older uh, translations called the abomination of desolation. All right. Standing in the holy place, reader, pay attention. Then those in Judea must flee to the hills. A person out on the deck of a roof must not go down into the house to pack. A person out in the field must not return even to get a coat. How terrible it will be for the pregnant women and for nursing mothers in those days. And pray that your flight will not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For there will be greater anguish than at any time since the world began, and it never will be so great again. In fact, that time of calamity is shortened. Not a single person will survive, but it will be shortened for the sake 
of God's chosen ones. Wow, what is that passage all about? Well, Jesus is referring to the prophecies that were given to Daniel about something that was going to happen in what we now know as 167 AD. A despotic ruler, Antiochus IV Epiphanes, came to Jerusalem and wreaked havoc in the city and in the temple. He offered swine's flesh on the altar of God. He tried to get rid of the Jews and the Jewish faith. But he was defeated by some Israeli commandos by the name of the Maccabees, who with God's help and God's power and some miracles, defeated Antiochus, rededicated the temple, and set it in order again. Jews today celebrate what is known as Hanukkah, or Hanukkah to, to commemorate that event. If you don't know much about Hanukkah, I encourage you to check out the web. It's a fascinating story, again, of God's intervention to spare his chosen people. And I do believe that the Jews are his unique and chosen people to this very day. And God has a special plan for them still in the future. But back to what Jesus was talking about, why would he be referring to something that had already taken place hundreds of years before he came? Well, that takes us back to the phrase when Jesus, when it says, reader, pay attention. Reader, pay attention. Pay attention to what? Pay attention. This is a double prophecy. This is a foreshadowing of what is to come. In other words, what I mean by that is Jesus is saying, look, you've all been discussing, and they had been, what happened according to Daniel's prophecy. You all agree it took place in 167 AD. Well, I'm telling you that that is a foreshadowing of what is going to happen again in Jerusalem. Except this time the temple is going to be demolished and Jerusalem ransacked. And it's going to be another abomination of desolation, a sacrilegious desecrating act in the temple. And, the, and Jesus is probably inferring two things here because we know that right before the Romans came and devoured the temple and Jerusalem, the zealots had taken over and the zealots instituted a unholy priesthood to kind of run the temple. That was a desecration. And then, of course, the Romans show up. And what do they do? They show up with their, their, their standards, with the eagle on the top and a bust of Caesar over it. And, and there they stand in Jerusalem. And there they stand in the sacred place, these, these Gentiles defiling what belonged to God. Luke makes this really clear for us in his uh, rendition of what Jesus said. He tells us, and when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, Jesus said, then you will know that the time of its destruction has arrived. And that's the sign the disciples were looking for. When you see the Roman armies beginning to form around, you know what's about to happen. That's the sign that I'm giving you. And that happened in 70 AD. That passage of scripture doesn't have anything to do with what we think of as the great tribulation at the end of time. This was a tribulation itself. And so to go to that passage and read it and say, well, this is describing the, the end times, the tribulation right before Jesus returns is a, is a misunderstanding and a misinterpretation of that particular passage of scripture. 
which then leads some of you probably to be asking yourselves, is there anything that Jesus said about the future that is, that is the future ahead of us? Or is it all the immediate future that the disciples were facing? And I'm so glad you asked that question. That's because as Luke shares with us the words of Jesus, and you know, each writer, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are, are kind of giving their perspective what they heard Jesus say. They're not making stuff up, but it's like, it's like three people watching a sunset. You're going to describe the basic sunset, but each person is going to probably add some unique features that were there that the other one left out. So Luke tells us that Jesus said, and Jerusalem will be trampled down by the Gentiles until the period of the Gentiles come to an end. And that's the transition point. That's the point where Jesus now begins to answer their question, and what will be the sign that you are coming? What will be the sign of the final and complete end of the world? Now, I don't have enough time to jump into that, and I want to do it justice, so we'll get to that next weekend and start talking about what's facing us in the future and deal with some uh, misinterpretations and some things that Jesus has said. I'll do a bit of a little timeline for you just so you can kind of picture what we've been talking about. But I want to take the rest of our time to talk about something that certainly is inferred by our series and something that uh, we're facing these days, and especially those of you who are parents who are raising your kids in this culture and world that we live in. Several weekends ago, I mentioned this whole uh, idea of progressive Christianity that's being promoted out there. It, it is really nothing more than a reconstitution of old, what I would call liberal theology but it's being packaged in an entirely different way with kind of a mix of, of what I call some Eastern mysticism with it, and it's very appealing. It's very appealing to people who aren't secularists in the sense that they deny the existence of God. They believe there's, there's a power out there, a force out there. It was interesting, I was, I was watching my kids over Christmas, uh, Star Wars, and you know, in that store, in, in Star Wars, you have the, the force, the dark side, right? And the, and the light or the, the good side. And there's this battle, right, between, you know, Luke Skywalker and his father, Darth Vader, and, you know, one trying to bring the other into the other side. And I thought to myself, you know, uh, Lucas was kind of, he was kind of speaking to the, the mindset of our time and, and, you know, back in the 70s, but also today of, yes, we, we acknowledge there's some force out there and, you know, how do I live within the good force? What, what do I need to do to, to, to emit positive energy and to, to be in vibe with what is all that is good, all right? So there's a lot of thinking like that out there. But people get really uncomfortable when you narrow everything down to Jesus and say that he is the Son of God that he died for the sins of the world, that he rose from the dead, and we have to bow our knees to him and receive him as our savior as we acknowledge our sins. It just makes God too narrow. So we're willing to accept kind of this force idea of God, a distant God out there that I can't really know, therefore I can kind of, I can kind of create who I think he is. We're okay with that in the culture, but we struggle with Jesus who makes it so narrow, who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father through me. So either you got to get rid of Jesus or you have to reinterpret Jesus. 
So what I want to do is I want to share with you something that came right off the progressivechristian.org blog written by a so-called pastor who is actually answering a question that someone had about the second coming. So I'm going to grab my stand because I want to read part of this with you and then I'm going to share part of it on the screen with you because I want you to actually see it. But let me start here. Here's what he says. He says, I do not view the second coming as a literal coming of Jesus Christ. I believe that the second coming is something profoundly different. Allow me to invite you into a new perspective about who Jesus and the Christ are. Now, if you just tuned in, this is not my opinion, all right? I'm telling you what somebody has written. Jesus was a prophet, he writes, a teacher and healer who lived on earth 2,000 years ago. Christ was the name given to Jesus by his followers. Over the course of Christian tradition, many Christians have come to believe that the word Christ is synonymous only with the person of Jesus. In other words, Christians have come to believe that Christ was Jesus' last name, belonging only and properly to him. Notice the use of the word according to tradition. This is misleading view and sets up a dysfunctional relationship between us and Jesus. Notice who he starts with, us. Progressive Christianity starts with me. Believing that Christ is a term reserved only for Jesus sets Jesus on a pedestal which we can never reach. Its implications are clear. Jesus was the Christ. Jesus performed miracles and healings and was the Son of God, human and divine. We, on the other hand, are merely mortals. We can never attain to what Jesus attained. Jesus may be our example, but we can never reach his heights or depths of spiritual attainment. We can never become Christed as he was. Such a relationship with Jesus gives us a distorted view of ourselves. So the focus is on me. And we're going to talk about this in a couple of weeks, what's happened in our nation, how we've gone to the psychological man, all right, how it's all about me. Such a worldview causes us to believe that we are inferior, limited, and finite. It teaches, us that, it teaches us what we cannot do rather than what we can do. It lifts up Jesus' divinity and downgrades our own. It says, look at all the things that Jesus did while forgetting that Jesus said, now here's the use of scripture, verily truly I tell you the one who believes in me will do the works that I do and in fact will do greater works than these, John 14, 12 taken out of context, now being used with some heresy to give it a flavor of being truth. You see, Jesus didn't come to put himself on a pedestal and us under his feet. Christ came to lift us up and show us our own divinity. Jesus said, I am the light of the world, and then added, you are the light of the world. Again, incorporation of scripture. He didn't want to make it appear that he exclusively had the light, for then we would think that he could be things that we could not. Our temptation, the presence of a master as advanced as Jesus, see how Jesus is being brought down now to a guru, is to be so in awe of the mastery we see reached that we downplay our own potentiality. We use Jesus' magnificence as a way of believing that we can never be quite so magnificent. Jesus came to lift us up and show us our own divinity. He came to show us that we too have the Christ potential within ourselves. The only difference between Jesus and us is that Jesus manifested the Christ potential. Many of us have not. 
yet still the Christ lies within us, waiting to be born and expressed. Now, just so you know, I'm not making this stuff up. Watch this. This is where I find meaning in the second coming. I believe that the second coming is the coming of the Christ into our own mind, heart, consciousness. This is what it meant to be reborn. Once in our lives are we born into our physical bodies. But when the consciousness of the Christ is born in our hearts and minds, then are we born into our spiritual bodies. It is then that we begin to realize our true nature and begin to live into it. Life is a continual process of rebirthing the Christ consciousness into our own consciousness, into the Christ consciousness is so fully who we are and what we live that manifesting the Christ presence is completely and utterly effortless. We are all sons and daughters of God. God become flesh. When we access and attune ourselves to the innate and internal Christ consciousness which exists in all of us, then not only have we been reborn, but we have experienced the second coming. The Christ has been manifested again in you. The road to Jesus' mastery and our own mastery is through Christ consciousness, which many masters have accessed throughout history. Look at this, Christian and non-Christian. When the Christ is born again in you, Christ has truly come again. Now, you and I might look at that and read it and just go, oh, that is so much rubbish. And it is. It is so much rubbish. But for people who don't know God's word, for people who are searching for answers, for people who are moralists, right? I mean, they're not out there to shoot anybody. They're not out there to terrorize. They're not out there to do evil things, so to speak then words like this are very appealing because it allows, it allows me to make Christ like me, except he's, he's somebody for me to emulate, not to bow to, not to worship, not to serve. I mean, after all, it's about, it's about me being the best me that I can be. If you listen to Hollywood, if you listen to politicians, if you listen to the quote intellectual elite of today, this is a very appealing message. And that's, that's why it's so important for us to follow the personality of Jesus, not the personality of anybody else. That's why it's so important for us to know what God says in his word. From Genesis to Revelation, what is the truth? And to know what the truth is about the future. And there are some things that Jesus has said about the future that we won't understand until it happens. I agree with that. But there's some things he said that have already happened but are meant to foreshadow more that is to come. And in the midst of all of this, and we'll be talking about this in a couple of weeks, Jesus says, if you hang on to the truth, the gospel truth, if you live for me, understand you're going to be going against the grain. You're going to be going against the current. And when you feel the pressure of being mocked or laughed at or belittled or tempted to embrace a Christ who is a false Christ in the imagination, in the social imaginary. Don't do it. Hang on to the true Christ. Hang on to the true word that comes in the revelation of God's word. And that's our hope. Yes, these are troubling times. And yes, these are dangerous times. But I am optimistic. I am encouraged that you and I can make a difference if we'll just stand on the foundation of God's word. 
and focus our attention on the personality of Jesus as God's word reveals him. We will be his remnant to bring hope to a world that so desperately needs him today. What has God said to you today? What do you hear him say to you right now? What is that one thing God's calling you to do? You know, I know one of those things is, is to join us in prayer. And we've got our three by three prayer challenge. Go to our website, check it out. We updated part of that challenge because you know something? I want to challenge you to join me in praying for the new president, praying for his cabinet, praying for our Congress. There's a lot of hate right now. There's a lot of pointing fingers right now. And it's a waste of our energy to do that. If you don't like where our government is, where the politicians are today, what's happening, get on your knees. This is time for us to believe in the power of prayer. You can go to the White House. You can go to the Senate. You can go to the House of Representatives. You can go to the governor's office. You can go to our state representatives. You and I, we can go there through prayer. And we can make changes. And that's what I'm calling you to do, to spend your energy that way. And let's pray against any more demonstration of violence in our culture, in our government, in our world. Let's pray for safety next week at the inauguration. Let's pray for safety in our cities. Let's pray for protection. And let's realize is who's on the throne that ultimately matters. And his name is Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we pray and ask that you would speak to our hearts in this series. We pray and ask that you would help us, Lord, to only hear your voice and only follow your son. Father, we pray and ask for our nation's repentance. All of us, Lord, all of us, no matter what political party we're a part of, no matter what side we're on, all of us need to repent. We need to repent of the violence that was done in the riots this past summer and the violence that was in Washington. And we need to repent, Lord, of our attitudes and opinions and name-calling that we've done. We need to repent of the hostility that we might feel in our souls, oh God. We need to repent, Father, of misrepresenting you and misrepresenting your word. Father, I just think about how Nehemiah and Daniel, your servants, repented for the nation. Repented for even the things that others had done that they had not done because they owned it. Lord, help us to have that same sense in our spirits. And God, hear the prayers of the remnant for the sake of the whole. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. We'll see you next weekend.